This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Series 2 and Episode 5 of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work that's being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung diseases using patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Louise Wright, the CEO for Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis, a charitable organisation that was set up in 2013 to raise awareness of IPF and improve the lives of patients and their families who were living with or affected by IPF. The charity has evolved over time and Louise was appointed a CEO in 2018. I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about the charity's programme of work under Louise's leadership. Welcome, Louise. Hi. So, Louise, I wonder if I could start by asking you to say a little bit about you and, and your working life in the non-profit sector prior to joining APF. Yeah, I joined uh, APF in 2018 after taking a year out and uh, supporting my family with a, a move and uh, new schools. But before that, I worked as chief executive of the Backup Trust, which was working with people with spinal cord injury um, and improving, helping people adjust to uh, their disability. Uh, And the thing that I was most passionate about and learned a lot at Backup, which was about peer support and using patient voice and patient experience to drive the changes that people wanted to see. Yeah, no, fantastic. And, and I think people who know and work with you are, are, are very much aware of, of that passion. So I guess it's only four years ago um, since you joined APF. And of course, we spent two of those years living through a pandemic. But before we speak a bit more in depth about the work that you're doing at, at APF, I wonder, Louise, if I could ask you just to take a moment to reflect. I I think often we're always aware of what needs to be done and and sometimes we don't take the time to stop and think about what we've achieved. But I'd be interested um, if you're happy to share what you think your own uh, greatest achievements have been over the last four years at APF. I guess so much has changed at Action. Um, When I started in 2018, it was December 2018. So really, it's sort of getting my feet under the table in 2019. And I was the only staff member. So I was the first person to be employed by the organisation. And they I was really attracted by the trustees who not only board members, but were delivering services they were going around setting up support groups doing talks getting articles in the media and my biggest job I think the thing I'm most proud of is growing the organization its reach and its impact while staying true to the trustees 
original vision, mission and values. And it's that that sort of continuum. It wasn't about bringing in changes that were new. It was about bringing in sort of realising the trustees' vision, but bringing uh, resources and sustainability to the organisation so that APF will be around for a long time for patients and their families. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I think rightly so. That's quite amazing. I, I think that often we live in a, a world we don't think about that sustainability and succession planning. So, Louise, I, I'd like to take that a, a, a bit further. I think it's um, really a, a, a strong testament that um, action is continuing the the work that it, it set out to achieve as a as a smaller charity. And I understand that one of the key focuses of of APF is finding a cure. Uh, I guess they're three little words, but uh, uh, not, not, not so easy to do in practice. So I wondered if perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about the work that Action is doing in that regard, maybe um, who you're working with and so on and so forth. Yeah, thank you. Um, we know for patients and their families that funding research and finding a cure is incredibly important. Uh, many patients tell us that they understand that it may be too late for them, but they are keen for research to progress and to one day find a cure. And so when I joined APF, we had just embarked on funding two fellowships and the organisation was taking stock. It takes a lot of money to fund good quality research and what is the role of a charity? But we partnered with Imperial and the James Lind Alliance and have undertaken a priority setting partnership um, where we put equal measure into uh, carers, family members, patients and clinicians on what their priorities are for the future of research into progressive pulmonary fibrosis. It is a process that is, uh, has been replicated around the world and we are um, the first organisation to, to be doing it in Europe and the results will be out in June 2022 but we're super excited to have I guess, strong support from patients, families and healthcare professionals in, in looking at what the priorities may be for the future uh, of research into P PPF. And I guess what we're also looking at doing is launching further funding off the back of the James Lind Alliance PSP. Um, the, we've decided at APF funding fellows um, is really important to the sustainability and future of research uh, into, into pulmonary fibrosis. And so we'll be delighted in, in launching a, a, a round of grant funding off the back of it. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic news. I know the listeners will be really pleased to to hear that. And um, I and and I guess 
um, in terms of those uh, the fellowships, that will be a competitive process, I'm assuming, Louise. I wondered if maybe um, you do have research leads within the organisation. I, I don't know whether you're able to tell us a, a little bit more uh, 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 about that process and the interview panels. Yeah, there's a panel that has been set up and we'll be launching the announcement of the panel um, in June as well, just off after the JLA announcement. Um, and the deadline, the expression of interest will be September uh, 2022 um, and it will be a competitive process. Yeah. No, fantastic. We we look forward to uh, he hearing more uh, about that. Um, presumably, um, at the same time, people are listening to this podcast. So, so that's fantastic. I think you mentioned in the introduction that um, you were a very small charity and uh, you were the first uh, employee. I think that's changed phenomenally. Um, I, I think you're you're quite a large um, charity now with some more salaried posts. And um, I, I wondered if you could just mention briefly who, who you work with, Louise, uh, within the charity at the moment. Yeah, thank you. We um, still feel very small, um, but we are 17 staff um, and we have built uh, staff posts uh, around um, the mission of the organisation. We decided that uh, supporting patients here and now was the first priority and we were lucky enough to win funding from the National Lottery to support multiple posts um, that will um, support support groups and peer support across the UK and we wanted to move away from our wonderful trustees who uh, you know it's not realistic for people to continue to travel up and down the country but bring in um, people whose role it is to support peer support. And much of our work is supporting support groups, but it's also a support line and growing our befrienders, understanding, particularly through COVID, that meeting up face-to-face -face isn't always possible. I have a growing research team, so working with uh, Dr. Wendy Adams and her colleague, uh, Claire, uh, who will be supporting the grant funding rounds and the growing work of patient participation in research and academia uh, and service development. Uh, I have a small um, but agile fundraising team who encourages many people to uh, take up cake baking and marathon runs, um, uh, as well as a communications team. We know that patients are keen for us to raise awareness of the disease so that they don't feel so alone, that um, people better understand and can spot the signs and symptoms of pulmonary fibrosis. And in the health space, Know, where there are good outcomes for people, charities take on a really important role in improving health outcomes. Uh, I think we work with Parkinson's UK, Cystic Fibrosis Trust, who take on that mantle, um, and APF have a long way to go, um, uh, but we certainly benefit from the mentoring of other organisations that 
you know, there's a sense of urgency, isn't there, for people with pulmonary fibrosis, and we haven't got time to wait. So we're really keen to, you know, grow as fast as possible. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's, you mentioned the word mentoring, I, I think that's so important and, and learning from um, others who've trod the path before. And I, I guess that new leads quite nicely into something that I wanted to ask you about the, I suppose, both national and local priority areas, which are possibly better established for other respiratory conditions such as COPD and, and asthma um, and to an extent interstitial lung disease and uh, pulmonary fibrosis are the poorer re- relations. Um, what do you think uh, Action's role is in, in sort of changing and challenging that? Um, you, you might have spoken to that a little bit, but if, if I could maybe ask you to, to say a bit more, Louise. Yeah, it's, re- it's a really important role and we're constantly treading a fine line I think the thing that I feel most um, strongly about is that we are not criticizing our healthcare professionals our patients and families adore their healthcare professionals they love meeting their ILD nurses it's about the system and investment in our nurses and our ILD professionals which is lacking And I think APF has a growing role in using the patient perspective and the patient experience to challenge that lack of investment um, and really standing side by side with our healthcare professionals. Yeah, that's great. I would certainly support that stance. And and thinking about the, those patients' perspectives, um, I, I know as a clinician that um, Action have done a, a great deal of work, particularly with setting up support groups uh, through, throughout the UK. Um, and I I just wondered in terms of of that model is how how the maybe different support groups connect and whether you're able to um, e- evaluate that program, whether they locally run um, or, or what what is there anything that comes out of the support groups that informs other other actions? Yeah, that's a great question. It's hugely variable. And support groups, we were before COVID, we were on the trajectory, we were looking at 100 support groups, we're back at around 66, but back and growing, growing again. And the support groups have taken a, a real knock, you know, the with through COVID, um, thinking about the digital divide, the skill sets uh, that have been you know, available to patients, but also the time uh, of our healthcare professionals uh, supporting the support group. So it, it has been a tricky time, but we are seeing support groups coming back. I would say across the country, we're seeing some real innovation um, happening uh, in where there is partnership and support groups are stepping over and above perhaps their traditional role of warmly welcoming uh, patients and families, providing information, uh, uh, signposting, and having being that holding hand to people as they go through uh, transitions in their health. 
but they're starting to step into uh, advocacy and supporting patients, perhaps with, uh, might be locally, going and picking up the phone for around blue badges or oxygen provi- provision, but even more with healthcare professionals thinking about how can they improve um, raising awareness with GPs to improve the diagnosis journey. How can we support our ILD nurses who are looking for some extra investment in time? We're hearing some wonderful partnerships across the country where patients are stepping in to a campaigning and advocacy role, which is supporting the growth and development of the services locally. Yeah. No, fantastic. And you mentioned earlier, Louise, about a befriending service. And I I just wondered how that sits, if that's linked with the support groups at all. And and for people listening to this podcast, how they could signpost um, their patients to to that befriending service if needed. Yes, particularly through COVID. And we saw support groups initially all close and then they started to open up online but what patients have been telling us really strongly is that they feel that they want access to a peer right from diagnosis and we know that not everybody will take that up but patients are telling us time and time again that it feels incredibly lonely and isolating to have a terminal diagnosis and they really want to have their handheld, be signposted to the right information, and perhaps speak to others who are living well with PF. What does the future look like and how can we get the most out of the time that we've got? Befriending is casts across the digital divide. It's by telephone and we match people up um, in partnership with healthcare professionals as well, but people can uh, sign up to a befriender directly with APF. But really we want to work with healthcare professionals in signposting early on to the right person or the or the right family Um, and it's not just for patients it's often for carers or younger family members who want to find out a bit more it's telephone based mutually agreed times and it could be one phone call or many Um, but the point is that it is flexible and not around geography so it's we've we've got some early results of impacts and the difference that it's making and we're hearing that people are feeling really empowered and less isolated after a match that's wonderful um and i'm I'm sure people will be um very happy to hear that that's something that they can they can access uh through action and and uh by visiting your website as well um 
You mentioned a few things within that that um, has made me think about that pathway from diagnosis through to palliative care and end of, of life care. And I, I wondered as a charity if you're involved in any of that pathway um, development work, um, uh, working alongside healthcare professionals and, and, and gathering that patient perspective as well to, to try and influence and improve that pathway of care from, from diagnosis? Yes, um, patients are very clear that they want a timed diagnosis. They want to know that they are going to be prioritised and seen urgently. And the 18-week wait referral times from GP is too long for our patients. Um, And, you know, we're hearing anecdotally as well, after COVID, waiting lists are increasing uh, for our ILD teams and... We are hearing from our patients that uh, 18 weeks to referral is too long and they feel that their outcomes are worse than many patients with cancer. There is no cure uh, for people with PF and they want to be fast-tracked. Similarly to uh, many cancer patients, Um, And we'll be starting to work with commissioners uh, and our healthcare professionals to put a stake in the ground to put forward some plans and ideas that we will see where they go, where they take us. But patients are very clear with us at APF that as an organisation, we need to be championing their voice and uh, we need to be brave. Absolutely. Um, and you've highlighted a lot of challenges that, that, that people have to contend with. I, I do think that uh, people with pulmonary fibrosis are, are generally quite amazing. I've never met such a positive group of patients in, in any other specialism. But I, I think uh, certainly on the back of the pandemic as well, um, there are particular sort of mental health challenges, psychological well-being challenges. Um, and I know you've mentioned that you've worked and learned from other charities such as Parkinson's uh, Charities and Cystic Fibrosis. Um, this might be a bit of an unfair question because you're not a mental health charity um, and there's, there is a bit of a shortage of psychologists. But I, I wondered if that's a space where you've had uh, the opportunity to do any work at all in terms of influencing those aspects of care. Yeah, that's a good question. We will definitely be looking at counselling and psychological support as we um, start to look at the care pathway um, again. I guess also the role of peer support plays a very valuable role for people looking for positive role models seeking positive coping strategies, lessening those feelings of isolation. It's a good alternative to counselling for many people across the UK. And we know that with healthcare professionals, where they work really closely with support groups, they can see the difference that it makes for their patients and how it does lessen 
the burden for them in the long run. They feel that they stand side by side with their with their support group in providing that emotional support, um, which often nurses are stepping into as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I know that you have an appreciation with that, that Action have historically been very supportive of the interstitial lung disease interdisciplinary network. And uh, I I think there have been some very nice collaborative pieces of education uh, and professional support that have come out of that. So, Louise, APF um, obviously very well networked um, with with practitioners throughout the UK, and I, I just wondered in that regard if you're aware of any uh, good examples of innovative practice um, that our listeners might be um, appreciate hearing about. Yeah, part of our stakeholder management, so starting to understand what the challenges and issues are across the UK, we spoke to um, healthcare professionals involved with the interstitial lung disease uh, network and other healthcare professionals and started to hear some of the innovation that was really quick and happening now. Um, We heard that Um, One ILD nurse had set up a partnership with her GP network and where there there were patients who were suspected of ILD, they were being fast-tracked to pulmonary rehab and lung function tests, but also being fast-tracked to their consultants so that they could have their tests and diagnosis much quicker and they were being referred straight to support groups and peer support organisations. And I thought that was a um, uh, something that I thought was, you know, fantastic innovation, considering um, how um, many of the teams that we're working with and talking to are short-staffed. So they're, they're really not, not well-equipped with the, with the increase in patients that they're starting to see. We're also hearing much more about um, uh, video conferencing for MDTs, working uh, greater collaboration through COVID from Spoke and, and Hub or uh, um, NHS trusts so that um, patients can be seen locally um, and we are hearing more and more where support groups are getting involved with their NHS trust and specialist centre and being involved in business cases um, normally around in, increasing uh, ILD nursing time or capacity and bringing their perspective into a business case, what it's like to have the proper time uh, and care with a nurse um, and the difference of what it feels like uh, when they don't. And I think that's wonderful. Um, we want to spread the, the innovation that's happening. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. And it may be that in time, um, people in other disease areas are looking to the world of interstitial lung disease for uh, innovation and advice. Uh, We can aspire. (laughs) 
Well, thank you, uh, Louise. I could talk a, a lot more, but I, I think we're at time. But it's been really insightful, and I'm sure our listeners will be um, inspired listening to this conversation. Uh, so thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Marie.